and welcome to Decades on Dirt Roads, a life lived and worked outside. This is Catherine. This is Maddie. And we are happy to welcome Dave and his wife, Joyce Huntsaker. Uh, they are two incredible people that we happen to pond uh, and have to give credit where credit's due. Thank you, Bill Mitchell. If you've, uh, if you are, if listen- you ever listen yeah. to this after yeah. recording episode one, we're giving credit where credit's due, Mr. Mitchell. So, um, if you're here, thank you for listening. Uh, Dave and Joyce, they, um, are two phenomenal humans through and through, um, public servants to the max. Yeah. I don't, I've, I've personally never met a couple that has done as much as they have within a community and at and, a national, yeah. I mean, truly at a national level to, and uh, traveled the world. Um, and yeah, they're, they're unique in, in a way that's, that's really remarkable. The only, the closest comparison that I could think of when we were sitting there with them is that if you watch Parks and Rec, they are Leslie and Ben in a less insane way like they are just that dedicated that dialed like that is the one thing that kept popping into my head like the only people i can even put them close to are these fictional people yeah a contemporary reference to to two really real humans um but we we get to dive into some stuff that they've done locally at the oregon trail interpretive center in baker city um and all the other places that they've had an impact on so we could have gone in a million different directions as far as the impact that they've had and the life that they've lived, but um, we're pretty excited to to share what we learned with you guys. Yeah, and and they're just so beautifully spoken. We got chills several times just the way that Joy speaks about her relationship with public land and all of that. Like, it feels good to share that, and I, we hope that you get the same reaction. Yeah, it was eloquent and peaceful, and I. I know that I really appreciate the passion that they speak with about their public lands and about what they do. And, um, yeah, it was just a, I, I got a, a, a lot of different reaffirmations that we're doing the right thing in, in, in recording these conversations and meeting these kind of people. So it turned out really well where we really like it and we hope that you guys do. So stay tuned if you want to listen to a cool story. Yeah, well, that's a compliment. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm sure it is. So uh, we'll get started, I guess, um, and we'll start. We'll start with Dave. But if you could kind of just give us uh, an overview of your career professionally, just to to see at the beginning where you've been, what you've done, uh, just a little snapshot, and then we'll we'll dive snap, in. Just a snapshot. Just a snapshot. Because, uh, I know that's maybe hard for a person like you. <laughs> it is. First, I'm. I still have the fire in the belly from when I was in college and decided what I was going to do. So, um, I'm out of high school in 1964. Oh, I went wait, to work. Tell us your name. Oh, I'm Dave Hunsaker. I live here in Baker City, Oregon. Perfect. Good deal. <laughs> so anyway, I graduated from high school in '64, and I went to work for the Forest Service uh, of fire control um, on the Plumas National Forest, and I worked up there, and then the San Bernardino and the Cleveland and um, the Tahoe National Forest, and then in 68, I was a foreman on a fire crew for BLM out of the Carson City District down on top of Conway Summit between Bridgeport and Lee Vining on the east side of the Sierras. Um, After that, I got a permanent job as a park ranger for the Corps of Engineers in Southern Illinois. 
you could hear the banjos when you, you went down there. <laughs> Let me tell you, and that was Abraham Lincoln country, and he had debated um, Stephen Douglas on the very steps of the county courthouse in Shelby County, southern Illinois, where the headquarters was for the lake. It was a big lake, Lake Shelbyville. It was brand new. Water was still coming up behind the dam, and I was one of the first three professional permanent rangers hired. So we got to um, do all kinds of programs, brand new, building stuff from scratch. You know, they had a lot of recreation experience, but they didn't have experience with professionals. So it was really cool. Then went to BLM in Utah, and I was a rec planner for the Price, the old Price District in central Utah and the San Rafael Swell. And then came to Baker the first time in 76, rec planner here, till 85. And then I went to Nevada, and I was the park manager at Red Rock Canyon National Conservation Area and also had the rec staff that gave the permits for the Mint 400, the Frontier 500 big off-road vehicle races, and the Barstow to Vegas motorcycle race. So we were busy down there. <laughs> Uh, came back to Baker to head up the Oregon Trail Center project. I uh, was the team leader for design and construction, and then the first manager for nine years. We got to put that together from scratch and work with the community, which was tremendous. Went to southern Utah out of Kanab, uh, the headquarters for the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. I was manager down there for five years. We had five offices. We put four visitor centers on the ground in five years, $10 million worth of construction money. Um, had about 82 staff and uh, paleontological resources, archeological resources, wildlife. I mean, you, you, it, was, it was unbelievable. Then went back to DC uh, in the Washington office, I was the uh, what they call the dad, the deputy assistant <laughs> director for the National Landscape Conservation System for BLM. At that time, about 25 million acres of specially designated country. Was that all over rivers. the U.S.? Pardon? Was your job in Washington for like all-encompassing? It was for throughout the entire BLM um, it, that was the office that set policy for mm -hmm. National Wild and Scenic River Management, wilderness, wilderness study areas, national monuments, national conservation areas within BLM. Oh, so it was a great job. Enjoyed it. Something fierce. The office was in Main Interior Building right below where Harold Ickes had his office when he was Secretary of the Interior under Franklin Roosevelt. Um, then we uh, went to Utah or went to Colorado, and I was the associate state director in Colorado for BLM, and ended up as uh, seven months or so as the state director before I retired. So that's then, all before you retired. Oh yes! Wow. Yeah. So Joyce, when did you hop on this train? <laughs> Honey, you should ask. <laughs> uh, I met Dave in person on the Oregon Trail, uh, the Oregon Trail project the National Historic Oregon Trail Interpretive Center. And I was the executive director of the Oregon Trail Preservation Trust. 
but as we worked together, and it was daily, daily, um, <laughs> we, we realized that our paths had crossed not only our lives, but generationally. <gasps> His people, my people, ago, ago, ago. And we are firmly in the camp that the gods play with you. <laughs> and if you're really listening and you get really lucky, they let you realize how much they're messing with you. <laughs> and they let you meet face to face. And we fell in love and we got married. It was the second time around for both of us. And it has just been one adventure after the other. We are kindred souls from multi, multi generations ago. Multi generations. We found that we both had doctors back in the 1800s. Medical, in Texas. Doc medical doctors who had actually gotten degrees. And in those days, that was very, very unusual. Very unusual. And they lived 75 miles apart. So we, we suspect that they were aware of each other at the same time. So wow. it was one of those things. You just, we just kept <clears throat> bumping into one another as time goes on. So it was kind of oh, wow. cool. And when the first time he was here in Baker uh, with his boys, they were very, very small. And I was a children's librarian at the library here. And I do remember his boys, especially Stephen, the elder one who had really white hair. It was like toehead blonde. <laughs> but the reason I remember them is because they had so many overdue books. Oh. <laughs> Dad's a little okay. busy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody's paying attention to the due date. So. Oh, no. But yeah, we, we just discovered that our lives had really been entwined for many, many years. Well, how special. That's it was. Awesome. It was. And we worked together on the Interpretive Center project every single day and many, many evenings and breakfast meetings for years to bring that thing online. Passion project turned into a marriage. Look hey, at that. Look at that. There you go. And it's lasted. Huh, look at that. Good on you. I think that had two scenarios. Yeah. One, you guys are going to become enemies. <laughs> yes, yes. Or, yes, or never Best case scenario. to me again. Best case scenario did end up happening. There you go. So I have a bit of a small world connection recently to you. Uh, so as I was doing kind of my little research uh, for, for this and just kind of researching what there was out for you guys, I saw that you had worked um, in, in Nevada on the, or in Red Rock Canyon. And I just ran my first marathon there. So I was thinking... You did you what? I ran, ran my your first, first marathon. Yeah. Uh-huh. Up so, on the loop road. Yeah. Oh, you know yeah, exactly great. where it is. You know what I went through. Yes. <laughs> yes. You can attest to that. So I was thinking of that connection and I was like, huh, Dave used to run this place. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is an interesting place. So it was beautiful. Yeah. It was super scenic. Um, so I was like, huh, that's a really cool... This is meant to be. We have to interview Dave. Exactly. This is pretty cool. <laughs> You know, the, the agency is a very pedantic, slow-changing thinking agency. But recreation isn't like that. Recreation is uh, foot to the floor and you better react quickly. And the agency needed those of us in recreation to help move it along. So when we went to Nevada, Red Rock Candy was only open four days a week. It was only part-time. We only had four staff. Wow. Um, and, and yet we had the tortoise issue, and they were looking for a place um, for a tortoise sanctuary and educational opportunities. I mean, the whole thing. And Senator Harry Reid at the time was obviously very interested in 
some of that southern Nevada country where he came from. And he came out one day with his entourage and he asked the right questions. What do you need? What, what can you do? Because you can't lobby Congress if you're a federal employee. You'll go to jail. No. And so, but you can answer questions if they're posed. So he did. And lo and behold, the BLM got a huge chunk of money. Uh, Red Rock was open then seven days a week, extended hours, and we started working with uh, a Southern Nevada nonprofit group called the Tort Group. And now there's tortoises all over Red Rock and in the enclosure and everything. Yeah, that was one thing I wasn't I wasn't anticipating as far as uh, little yield signs of yield for little turtles. As I was she... running, I was like, am I going to see a turtle while I run right now? So that was something that was kind of cool. But I was thinking of you often as I was like, oh, he, he worked in this place. Yeah. This is a yeah. really cool a really cool spot to recreate. And there yeah. were rock climbers there and there were all these different things. And I said, huh, maybe I should come back here and not run and do something maybe a little different. So that was pretty cool. Um, And keeping that community involved has been the secret to that success, too. So that nonprofit friends group called the Friends of Red Rock Canyon, The Force, uh, is still going. And they're still involved thousands of hours every year. And they do everything. That's pretty cool. They're a great group. Just like the trail tenders were here for 30 years. For 30 years. Yeah. at the interpretive center so yeah speak to i mean there's there's so many different things that we can kind of dive into with your guys's adventures and all the things that you guys have been a part of but i think uh to keep it to keep it home you guys have spent a lot of time um and energy and um yeah and just yeah time bringing life to the generations that literally walked throughout mm-hmm. this land and throughout this um throughout this area. So, uh, to whatever capacity, Joyce, you know, speak to, I've heard, I've heard the name Fanny and you, (laughs) and you being a part of, of her story. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what has that meant to you to make it a part of your life to represent somebody who came before you and, and walk in her steps and, and just kind of that, maybe I'm not saying that super eloquently. No, I, I understand where you're coming from. Um, I'm a fourth generation Bakerite. My people came across on the on the trail, and in every family, it seems there was one person who was the designated keeper. Mm. Uh, I come from a long line of keepers, and so knowing the history of a place, the landscape has always been important in my line, and the artifacts that might come from that, the stories that have come down. Um, so it felt natural to me to do the research. Uh, amongst documents and letters and so on that were from the Oregon Trail era, people who traveled across. And I had my great-grandmother's trail bonnet that she actually wore when she came across. Wow. And being the armor star ham that I am, <laughs> I thought, you know, I could, I could put together a composite character, give a voice to all these stories that were so common to the Oregon Trail era. And I donned a costume, put on the bonnet, and the words just came out of my mouth. And that's Mm -hmm. how Fanny was born. It is a true thing, especially here in the West. The land remembers. Mm -hmm. If you get out on the landscape and you listen and you look and you use your senses, 
the memories come alive in a certain way that I can't explain. But when I was on stage or traveling, um, classrooms, Congress, wherever it was, if you get out of your own way as a personality, you just let those words and the power of the words come through and the landscape comes through with it. They are, intercha they are not interchangeable, they're intertwined. So Fanny herself uh, gave voice to many, many stories that were typical for women and men from the Oregon Trail migration era. When we were trying to build the Oregon Trail Interpretive Center and trying to get people to understand what an interpretive center was, um, <laughs> Dave did the BLM show and tell, and here are all the blueprints, and here is the schematics, and here is our timeline. And he would do that portion, and then Fanny would show them what we had in mind. Yeah. And between the two, they got the full package. They got the full vision of what we were trying to do. And at that time, BLM didn't do interpretive centers. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to show in a way that would educate, entertain, and pull the purse strings and the heartstrings. Because we needed a lot of support to get the interpretive center built. Certainly. That's how we came together. That's how Fanny played her piece. And then after the Interpretive Center was open and running and we could see what a success it was, I took Fanny on the road. And we <laughs> went everywhere from literally broom closets and bars to, to the U.S. Congress, to the Smithsonian, to the National Geographic, you know, wherever David was posted, like when we were back in D.C., I took Fanny and all the rest of the girls that I had different characters uh, I took them with, and that was my way of opening up the possibility of what the, the land means culturally, historically, personality-wise, because look at the word history. Most of it, it says story, and that's what people remember. So for the people who don't know, don't live in Baker, mm -hmm. do you want to kind of go through like what the Interpretive Center is, what's there, kind of describe it for people who don't really have a good visual. Yeah. Well, the reason it's there is because in the mid-80s, Baker had about 18 to 22% unemployment. So this entire project was not driven by the feds or the agency or any of that. It was driven by the local community who was feeling economically threatened. So a local bunch of people got together and they met every Tuesday morning at seven o'clock in the morning for one hour. And then they all went back to their businesses. There was no federal people involved, no government folks, just them. From that thought of how can we utilize some resource that's out here to help our economic situation in this county. Several things came together at one time. Um, Governor Goldschmidt at the time asked each of the Oregon counties in Oregon to come up with an economic development plan. The ones along the northern tier, the Oregon Trail, all zeroed in on the Oregon Trail as a potential economic engine. So they built their economic development plan around historic and cultural tourism. That was their thought. As a result of that, then, 
these people looked around and said, wow, seven miles out of town is the trail. You can still see it. You can walk it. You can visualize it because not that much development has occurred in the last 150 years. So they went to the top of a little butte out there, Flagstaff Hill, and they looked and said, this is the place right there. And then they started their politics and their community awareness and the, that whole movement. And that is what drew the agency in because it was on BLM land. So the agency jumped on board and the politicals jumped on board and the private side jumped on board and Leo Adler donated $104,000 in matching money to the trust as a challenge to raise funds on the private side. Once the private side started to get real money, uh, Senator Hatfield and Senator Packwood, Packwood uh, jumped on board and said, we're going to ram some money through the feds on the fed side. So that was a partnership that you don't see very often. And it was both sides of the aisle, Democratic governor, Democratic guy in the House on Ways and Means Committee, and two Republican senators all came together with a little town in eastern Oregon mm -hmm. and got the, got the funding. And their idea stayed pretty well close to the uh, vision what you have, but except for the petting zoo, we decided to... <laughs> We wouldn't have a petting zoo. Not, not kidding. That was part that of the was original. That was wanted. Yeah. That was the original vision the, and a smellorama. A smellorama. Because they were thinking if people could smell what the trail really smelled like when it was being yeah. used, they would have a better idea. And Can't a you just go slide. walk in a pasture and get that smell? <laughs> My people, gosh. Come on. <laughs> oh, Lord. So we, we took their thoughts and we melded them down into something that would achieve a broad set of objectives, education, economic development, visitation, awareness, cultural protection, a whole series of those objectives could be met. And that interpretive center up there is, is uh, the result of that. It was an incredible partnership. The BLM as an agency under Department of Interior, the Oregon Trail Preservation Trust, because we could lobby. Mm -hmm. We were the private punch, and we, we raised money and did the political stuff and the community. It was a triangle, and it was magical. The time that we were all coming together, things moved at a rapid pace like you've never seen in government. Um, and like David said, it was across the aisle, it was federal, it was state, it was local, everybody pulled together. And that sort of pulling together was exactly the, the characterization of the Oregon Trail itself. People from all kinds of backgrounds didn't know one another, different skill sets, different levels of experience, and they had to come together to survive and get to where they were going. Had to. That was it. Mm -hmm. Well. We knew we had to, and it became quite a, quite an interesting adventure. Challenging it a, sometimes. It was a huge adventure, and yeah. um, at that time, Governor Goldschmidt was out of office, and Governor Barbara Roberts was in office, so she came out for the groundbreaking mm -hmm. ceremony in May of 91. Wow. In May of 91, 18 shovels went in the ground down at the bottom <laughs> of the hill. In May of 92, 12 months later, the thing opened. 
That's unbelievable. Wow. We built that That's thing over the winter. Fast. Thank heaven we had a fairly open winter. Yeah. Built that thing in 12 months, opened it, and put 10,000 people through in three days. And the community's effort to bus people using the school district school buses, get the drivers lined up, get the Chamber of Commerce involved in terms of marketing, working with the Oregon Trail Tour or the Oregon Tourism Division. Um, there were a lot of moving parts, and it came off beautifully. That's awesome. So is everything in there donations from local people, or is it... No, no. there are Where, some donations. So how did everything come together with whatever's inside, all that's inside there? That was the design criteria. Okay. Uh, the design team, of which there were about seven of us, including engineers mechanical engineers, interpretive specialists, uh, myself, Joyce. Uh, there was quite a group on that. And out of those thoughts came this standard process to do interpretive planning. You do your bubble planning, you do your idea, you do mm -hmm. your threads, you do your um, some of your uh, storylines together. And then from that came this center. But the center wasn't built first. Mm. The interpretive mm -hmm. stuff was built first. So that was easy to fill once the building was actually That there. was the driver, and all we did was put walls around it rather gotcha. than build a square and put stuff mm -hmm. in it later. Try and make it all fit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, the, so the artifacts the uh, that you see there, some of them were purchased, some of them were on loan for 30 years. Uh, we had magnificent scholars uh, and the Oregon Historical Society and just all over the country came together to help support us doing things in right. And so some of the some of the artifacts came from Oregon Historical Society. Some were purchased, mm -hmm. like the big book that we bought, yep. um, the mapping book from Fremont. Book from Fremont. That was first purchased. edition. John Fremont. That uh, was purchased privately. That was purchased. We those of us who were just you know twanching at the bit. We all went together and purchased that so that it could be on a display. The um, wagons were built back in Ohio mm -hmm. uh, on contract. And it was, it was really amazing because obviously the trail segment that you see when you walk in is you wouldn't see brand new wagons, yeah. nicely painted with, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. fresh canvas. No. Yeah, they've seen some country. They're a little rough. They're down. almost yeah. there. <laughs> almost there. <laughs> so here came those wagons that were on that entry trail exhibit. And I took one look at them and I said, oh, oh. God, we can't do this. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> the guy was just absolutely proud of his wagons. He modeled them after Studebaker wagons from the day. Yeah. We took them out in the parking lot and beat the living <laughs> heck out of them with chains, with chains. and saws Gouges. and hammers Please and tell me mud. you waited until after he no, left. No, no. Oh. no. He had man. his crew there, and so they were. They have to put them in the exhibit. Yeah. Well, we couldn't do that after they were in the exhibit, and he was almost literally in crying. tears. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And we explained it to him, but that was kind of the way it went. So that's why they look beat up. <laughs> huh. So you personally beat those suckers up? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and some and some of the um, mannequins that were in the Grand Gallery, their clothing was way too good for people who'd come to this stage of the trail. So we had to do the same thing to all of that. 
Wow. Rough oh, and tough. Rough and tough. It's rough. like when you get a fresh yellow and yeah. you gotta rub it in the dirt before you actually wear it <laughs> in front of people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they got some street cred coming out this far west. <laughs> yeah. They can't be seen in, in bright colors. Come on. That's right. That's, a, that's some crazy attention to detail for you guys, oh, though. Good on you. Even the mannequins, the, the making of the mannequins, we <clears throat> knew the people who were involved in putting that grand gallery together, and they modeled the mannequins after the crew. It's their own faces their and their children's faces. faces. And even the little children, and they had little little um, straws. straws stuck up their noses so that they could breathe during the process where the mold is being made. I mean, you talk attention to detail. The freeze-dried flies, no kidding, on the eyes of the oxen. All that stuff. All oh. of it. Oh, yeah. And, and the, the mural on the uh, great gallery... The mural that's on the wall, not the mirrored part, but the actual wall. The south wall. The south wall is painted so that it marries up with the actual landscape as you're looking through the grand gallery window. It's just a continuation. Of that ridge. And the reason that the mirrors are there is so that you put yourself into the scene. You are part of that grand gallery and you see yourself reflected back through all of the wagons and the animals and the people. You can't believe the detail. You just really can't unless you were there and ate it, dreamed it, worked it every single day for months and months. And we had a years project, a project plan that is four feet long and two feet high. Yeah, it had to be a heck of a on whiteboard. My bathroom wall. On your own personal bathroom wall. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. oh, yes, in the house. And oh, yeah. each little square was a day, and we would mark off the days. My gosh, seventy-five oh, yeah. hard done a little different. I'm Over a you. three and a half year period, and we ended up on the day. Mm-hmm. On the projected the red day. Mark. That, was that never happens. No, you're never. right. It'll and never happen again. One <laughs> <laughs> and done. There. We have never. tremendous support, you know. And if the community supports something and the people push it, the politicals generally react in a positive way mm -hmm. if it's a worthwhile thing and it was and it did so we were really fortunate to be here at that time well and historically we were coming up on the sesquicentennial of the oregon trail itself mm -hmm. the national historic trail which was 1993 so opening it up in 92 everybody had felt the push and there were those who wanted us to wait until four other interpretive centers were in place along the entire trail to Oregon City. And our local folks said, not only no, but mm-mm. <laughs> we're going to be the first. <laughs> we're going. We are going. We're, we're doing ready. It. We're doing it. And it's going to open up. And boy, it was spectacular. It Baker was Bulldogs, so getting it done. You go. That's Bulldogs. awesome. Yeah, I'm a 70 myself. Yeah. <laughs> so you remember when we talked about Governor Goldschmidt telling each county that mm -hmm. they need to come up with an economic development plan. Well, Oregon City's county, whichever one is that, Lane County or remember. whomever, they came up with it and they came up with an interpretive center called the End of the Oregon Trail Center in Oregon City. The Dalles came up with the interpretive center at the Dalles that talked about the Columbia River economic uh, impacts of river management, natural resources, and the Oregon Trail, along with Lewis and Clark. We came up with this one, and there's one down at the Four Rivers in Ontario 
that was uh, far less, but um, interesting. So those four from the state side were the big drivers for that sesquicentennial. Mm -hmm. Later, and every bit as important, but different theme was the one at Tomostlicht at uh, the, res of, the reservation in Pendleton. Out of Pendleton. Oh, that yes. one tells the story from the Native American window, which we couldn't tell that story. And they actually didn't want us to even try to tell that story. So once their casino went in and they started to see some cash flow, they had several big plans for that. And among them were uh, an educational center and an interpretive center. And the manager at the interpretive center, Bobby, is still there today. Wow. And uh, so we've stopped by several times mm -hmm. and tried to work with them. And they're a great bunch up there. Yeah, what, during the time we were building this interpretive center, they they did they were aware of what we were doing they came on site they gave us guidance but they said straight out we don't want you trying to tell our story because you're not tribal people and that made perfect sense so we did have a little bit of a what would you call it just a a, a native american flavor flavor and especially in one much. place and they allowed us to do to have some of their relics and some of their regalia mm -hmm. and whatnot but it was always with the understanding that when they came time to build their own interpretive center, that that would be where the story would really be told. And they've done a magnificent job. And it is. Job. And if you haven't really seen that, have. you really should go. Yeah. It I've, is fabulous. I've been there a couple of times. Uh, we would do like some field trips and stuff, and then I've gone there with my family. It's, it's really cool and really mm -hmm. well done. It, it is. is. It yes. is. It's moving. Good. It's really quite a place. Yeah. yeah so obviously that, I mean, that's, that's a... There's so many different avenues of adventure within that story oh, itself. Yeah. But how can you guys speak to, I mean, you talk about that. That's not just a, a project that you can leave at work that fully encompass your guys' lives and even <laughs> yes, your bathroom. Yes, and, your walls. and our bathroom oh, yeah. walls. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you guys manage that? And maybe speak to that. Maybe you don't know how you managed it. You just went through it and it was just part of your daily life. I think we both just emotionally and financially and time uh, allotment-wise just decided this is really worth doing. This is worth a segment of our lives, and this is going to be our lives, and it was. We both um, have an affinity, uh, deep love and respect for history. Mm -hmm. Certainly. And we both like to reach out to people and talk about not only what happened, but why the ramifications of those decisions and the effects and legacy for today, which is extremely relevant for today. Uh, so that helped drive us. Um, the idea that we were we had a bunch of support behind us was a huge factor. Um, wherever we went, we stopped. When I was raising my boys, they would be in the car and we would see a roadside history sign oh dad do we have to stop again <laughs> as you're already pulling oh, off yeah. the freeway yes. don't yes. even waste the time yeah. to ask him or learning rolling of the eyes yeah. oh, yep. the seats you know? so that familiar. kind of commonality really really helped that yeah. yes yes it did but also we we wanted it to succeed 
to the level we knew it could because it was a brand new idea in the BLM and frankly to the community. They, they even misspelled interpretive like three different times on the signs going up to the interpretive center oh, and that was ODOT. So, <laughs> uh, their attention to detail was not I'm telling you. up to par. So we knew how magnificent this place could be, <laughs> and that's what we dedicated ourselves to. And I'm telling you, it was just magical when we opened and 10,000 people went through that place in the first three days. <clears throat> it and was they came, busy. And they came from all over the world for the first 20 years it was open. Oh, all, all over, over the, the world. world. My mother, who has just passed away, was on the statistics-keeping end of that. And her little group would go down through the register for the log, and they would say, oh, here's one from Holland. Oh, Germany. Oh, well, where is Belarus? And, I mean, you know, it was just amazing. <laughs> These people from all over the world were coming to our interpretive center here because the word was out. It was such a gem. That's incredible. That yeah. is, Yeah. Yeah, you don't see that much anymore. But for you guys, I mean, that's you guys set a tone from the beginning as far as buy-in went, and you guys. Well, it's very gratifying. Yeah, I have sure. to say it's it, it made well. I don't. I can't speak for David, although I usually do. Yeah. She does. She does very well generally. <laughs> for me personally, it was the feeling that I had I had fulfilled the position that was left to me as a storykeeper. I had the past right here in my hand because I'd been raised with it all my life. And I was keeping this place for the future, which is what we were looking toward. You know, that center is going to be there long after we are. So I was the keeper. I was doing my job. And it was really worth the, all of the time and the effort and everything that it took because the future is out here. And if we don't keep that place, it's gone. It's gone forever. Yeah. Um, one of the people who was on my um, Oregon Trail Preservation Trust Board was Fred Warner Sr. His grandmother walked the trail. His grandmother lived in his house when he was a boy. And he, he said in our promotional video that we made, you know, my grandmother walked the Oregon Trail and I saw the first man on the moon on TV. He said, that is important that's powerful that is yeah. powerful and I'm, I'm still getting goosebumps yeah and here he is old bow-legged fred in his cow haha boots <laughs> and his levi's and i mean yeah, he's a real he was the real deal he was the genuine article in this valley cattle ranching from the day the get-go and he would look into that camera and say my grandmother walked the Oregon Trail, and I you know, shook hands with a man who walked on the moon. Wow! Yeah. That's the West. That is, that's better than anything Hollywood can write. Oh, certainly. He was the honest-to-goodness, looking straight at you, pulling no punches. That's why we have to have this interpretive center, because if we don't do it, it will be lost. That's the message. So from my perspective, with the, with the agency that was um, sometime at war with itself between different aspects of 
federal laws that require us to do things and sometimes come in conflict, if you can imagine that on public lands. Uh, um, no, not at all. <laughs> when, I was in, when I was in college, I was at San Diego State, go Aztecs, by the way. Nice. Um, we had a book called Outdoor Recreation in America, and it was a book about uh, an inch thick. And one of the chapters had discussions about the federal and state side of outdoor recreation, what agencies do well and what they do. They had a full half chapter uh, on the Park Service, obviously, and almost a half chapter on the Forest Service. And the Fish and Wildlife Service was smaller. Bureau of Reclamation was very little. BLM had three paragraphs. <laughs> Bureau of Land Management had three paragraphs talking about outdoor recreation opportunities. Oh. And this is 270 million acres of public lands. Give me a break. Yeah, we can do better. So even then, uh, when I looked at that, I said, I, I, want, I want to be part of BLM. They don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. Maybe we cannot have a clue together and do something serious. Yeah. So extremely lucky to be in the bottom layer, the foundational layer of an awful lot of this stuff in, in BLM all the way through. And now it's a leader in outdoor recreation, without a doubt. You were part of that change. That's yeah, cool. I yeah. felt good. 40 years in the outfit. Well, me and a whole bunch of other people. Yeah. Whole bunches. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. That's when we were stuff. in D.C., um, and Dave was with the National Landscape Conservation System, of which the Oregon Trail Interpretive Center is one. It's in that system. It's a piece of it. Yeah. It's a piece of it. Um, they were casting about for a motto, a tagline, because National Landscape, wow, wow it, it's yeah. a mouthful. <laughs> Dave and I were driving down the highway out of Kanab, Utah at the time, and bouncing ideas back and forth. And we came up with Landscapes of, of the American, American Spirit. Spirit. So there it is. And they took that. They took that. And so, that's, what, that's what it is. That's what our public lands are and the various jewels that you find in public land. They, they are landscapes of the American spirit. They're part of all of us as Americans. They're part of our mythology. They're part of our cultures, plural. They are part of our aspirations, and that's why they are so important to be public lands, not private lands that can have a fence across and says, you know, no trespassing. In other countries, the land belonged to the crown, and then the crown would disperse the lands to the lords and the counts and the marquis and all of that, but the crown could always take it back. It's different here. It's different by design in America, and you can it speak is. to that. This is um, the first experiment of its kind in humankind was the policy of the government was to divest, divest itself of the land base of the nation. That was the policy. The Donation Land Act, the Homestead Acts, all, all the various acts whereby public lands went from the federal government's ownership to private ownership. And it, it, was, it is still a very noble experiment. There are some aspects of it that are really challenging because by and large, the stuff left 
like BLM lands, for instance, that were not specifically designated, so they were leftover lands from the uh, public domain, were the lands that nobody wanted. They didn't have water, they didn't, and all you had to do was control a water source and then you could control tens of thousands of acres around that water source. So you as a private person could acquire a deed to lands that the government owned and they couldn't take it away from you, by and large. That had never been done in human history before. And it's still an experiment that's ongoing. It is <clears throat> as interesting as it gets. And that's yeah. why it's important that yeah, our public lands stay public. Stay in public ownership. It's becoming rarer and rarer as we get the population becoming more and more. And the density of the population mm -hmm. back in the east is coming west more and more. We're manipulating the land to make it more habitable um, or more productive. Well, you know, from where I sit, being a Westerner by birth and, and by culture, um, part of that productiveness is you can go out on the land. You can be relatively alone. You're not assaulted by noise or smog or you name it. Um, you can breathe. Yeah. You have vistas. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was a child and my father and mother would take all five of us kids on a trip in our 1955 Plymouth station wagon with no air conditioning in southern Nevada. <laughs> and, and a dog. We would, we would drive. And Judy in the back. And Judy the German Shepherd in the back. And we would drive. And when we were on long trips, um, of course at that time, when I was born in 46, I think there were 140 million people in this nation. Now there's 335 million, almost three times as many, two and a half times. But I remember long stretches between Los Angeles and Las Vegas where you didn't see anything, mm -hmm. nothing, not anything, mm -hmm. a Burma shave sign. Do you guys know what Burma <laughs> shave signs are? Uh, okay. nope. I'm well, seeing glassy I, eyes over uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, that's another podcast, uh, oh, the Burma yeah. shave signs of America. Right? Oh. <laughs> anyway, yes. that's all you saw. And now, nowadays, with the advent of population growth, um, the development is nothing short of astounding in some of our farthest uh, away places. And so public lands take, to me, they do um, much greater importance in our lives uh, and everybody's lives. I think it's, they're important to keep. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys can it's, it's easy to hear how passionate you guys are about this. And I, as a passionate mm -hmm. person myself, I really appreciate that. But I'm sure that you guys ran into your handful or a handful of, of obstacles that does not serve it well as far as a word to replicate what you guys had to go through to pitch this idea. But I'm sure that there were a handful of folks that maybe didn't see eye to eye with this project oh, yeah. that you guys had yes. fully yeah. encompassed. So... You know, how did you do that besides beating wagons and, <laughs> and rolling? It's therapeutic, to, trust me. It's oh, I'm therapeutic sure. to kind take care. Well, I have one story, and I'm sure Joyce has several also, but the project office was an old house uh, where Maverick is now. Mm -hmm. So there were four houses in that block, three of which are gone. There's only one left now. 
The next door neighbor to the project office was not a supporter. He and his wife were elderly and they had their own ideas of where, about where all this money should go and it shouldn't go there, it should go here and here and here and here. So I, after a public meeting, I went next door, knocked on the door, said, do you remember me from last night? I'm Dave and I, if you have a minute, his wife uh, was not ambulatory, so she couldn't come over. I said, why don't you come next door? I want to show you something. And I want to understand more about where you guys were coming from because they were pretty, but they weren't adamant, but they, they let their feelings be known. And he came in and we talked for, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes. And I showed him the models and all the props that we had. And I talked about what the expectations were and why the business people wanted to push this and the education piece for the children and blah, blah, and our legacy and everything else. That guy went out there and started handing out handbills and flyers <laughs> supporting the Oregon Trail. And Tur no kidding. Yeah. He did. Yeah. A lot of it is personality driven and having a commitment that you can communicate to others. If if it was just a government guy next door and he just gave you your flyer and said thank you for coming, I appreciate it, you can see right through that. Certainly. But you need to take the time and engage people. You really do. And I'm going to toot David's horn now because he won't do it himself. Wherever we've been posted, whatever we've been given to do, his personal touch, his willingness to go next door, have the people come in, sit by a campfire, go out into the wilds of Utah on a horse with the guy, the landowner, who doesn't want you to be anywhere near his, his cattle or anywhere near his permit. The willingness to put out a hand and say, look, I am here you are there, let us talk together. We're not agency and permittee here. We are guy to guy, guy to woman, whatever it might be. We're gonna get this done and we're gonna do it together. I'm here to listen and I'm here to talk. He always has done that. It's always worked. Sometimes it took a few more times to do it, <laughs> but it is personality driven and it's, it's the willingness to say, let's just drop all of the barriers that we've built up before we even meet each other. And let's just sit and talk. Mm -hmm. Things can, we can find common ground. Mm -hmm. We can find places where I might be able to scooch a bit and you might be able to scooch a bit too. It is, it's remarkable. This is the reason they have all been successful wherever we've been posted, despite contentious issues despite problems on the ground. This is why, right here. So I always like to end that <laughs> discussion by, by saying uh, that she's right. It is personality driven to a great extent. And um, I've been really fortunate to be able to work with some great people. That being said, you can't have a program that's a public program built around and solely supported by one personality. Right. Personalities come into everything, and the more passionate and the more far-thinking and communicative and everything else, those are all great tools to use. But if you don't institutionalize those things before you leave a place, then the, that work may fail over time. So mm -hmm. it's setting that legacy within your 
under employees mm -hmm. to kind right. of leave that and mentoring and process and process bringing people along uh having policies that will carry on long after you're gone um you're passionate about fire for instance that's where you want to spend your career i don't know if it is or not but if it is that's that's we'll use this as mm -hmm. an example and you teach your fire crews and the people that are working with you the right way to do things. Be safe, how to rehab. I mean, all of these elements that go into that. <clears throat> but your piece of it, if you leave and you don't institutionalize that and carry that on through a good, solid mentoring system, then you will fail in terms of it'll dry up, the support mm -hmm. will dry up, and pretty soon you'll be standing there looking around all by yourself saying, what the hell happened? Yeah. So so you gotta do that. That's the legacy piece behind that. And yeah, you gotta be committed to connection. Be committed yes, to connection, connection and for the key. long haul, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, and it, even after retirement, I mean, we're, we're getting calls of so-and-so is coming up through the ranks and your name was mentioned and do you still mentor? Do you still, would you even talk to me on the phone? You know, this kind of thing. And that's part yeah. of the legacy. You're, you stay passionate. It does not go away when that project's done and you get a new posting. Mm -hmm. You're still yeah. passionate. That's got to be a pretty cool feeling, though, being a mentor to people. Oh, that yeah, you've it's seen. great. Yeah. yeah. It's great. And, you know, n n now you guys coming up, you're used to reaching out to mentors and you expect folks, a level of expectation in terms of mentorship is different. When I was coming up in the 60s, you didn't question anybody. When my first son was born, I couldn't go. So I took off by myself and drove the fire truck from the top of Conway Summit to Reno, Nevada, where the hospital where he was born turned around at 4 o'clock in the morning, told the fire crew guy that I brought to take the fire truck back to camp because I was going to be here when that kid was born. Yeah. You, you didn't say to the boss at that time, I need to go see my little league, my, my daughter play little league. I, 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 you, you would no more think of that than anything. But now, as it should be, that's an, that's an integral part of that mix. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I really do. Yeah, that's definitely a change for the better to have that. Oh, it has. It is. Open into communication. So one day, right before I retired, I was asked by a group of folks, I was giving a speech about firefighting or something and support, and I was getting ready to retire. And one of the audience members raised her hand and she said, so what do you see as the biggest change in BLM in, in your time? And I said, well, that's easy. That's easy. Gender? And footwear. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, everybody laughed, all 150 in the audience laughed, gender and footwear. I said, gender is an easy one to spot. When I first came up, there, were, there was one woman on the entire district, and she was the typist. There was a part-time woman, and she was the fire crew cook. Mm. <clears throat> At one time, I worked for an area manager that was female, a district manager that was female, a state director that was female, and a national director that was female, all at the same time. That's a big change. Now, the footwear piece 
is something that's different. That's yeah. the genetic piece of the agency. When I first came to work for this agency in 1968, you didn't see anything but cowboy boots. Hmm. At every meeting, Did you guys no matter just have blisters all the time then? Uh, cowboy boots. Yeah. yeah. Those, those like, aren't, they're not, hiking boots. Not. And so I said, look around now. And of course, everybody looks around yeah. under the tables. <laughs> and, and I said, how many people here are wearing cowboy boots? And I raised my hand yeah. and <laughs> stay old four or five or six people raised there. theirs. And I said, that is indicative of the change in the genetics of this agency. You got rec planners, you got economic people, you've got manager types that came up to wildlife, you've got a whole variety of, of specialists that have come up and that's you guys now. So mm -hmm. hang tight, go in there and do it. I like so that. That was, that was great. Gender and footwear. That's awesome. Gender and Here footwear. Go. <laughs> That's awesome. Changes, Very yeah. catchy. Very, yeah. Yeah. You guys are all about slogans. I like this. Yeah. I'm a big phrase person. We should so. ask you guys when you're trying to figure out the name for the podcast. Yeah. I found my first binder when I was brainstorming like two years ago. And I looked at it and I was like, I'm just going to throw this page away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very embarrassing. Yeah, but those are good to keep because it keeps you humble. Oh, it right. Does. It's very humble. Oh, I yeah. found you, that today. Start, I forgot to tell you on the drive up. Just start looking back. You go, oh, was I out of my mind? What was I smoking? It's well, like, it was during planting season, so I was waking up at three in the morning. Oh, so. delusional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's my excuse. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Well, not only for the interpretive center, but for, for the agency. Once, once the project was done, I went out on my own and did interpretation and historical interpretation and when the when the agency was celebrating its big 50th anniversary um, they came to me and asked me if i would be willing to put together a program that uh, showed all the changes of the agency from when it first was in uh, the inception of it to today and after thinking what in the world are I'm going to do that. I, I created five different characters to talk about the agency as it was affecting the people who were alive at that time. And so we started off with homesteaders. And we brought it up through the Wild West. And then we came up to um, a war bride who came over. And, wow. you know, the various measures and FLIPMA and all of the various laws that BLM had to adhere to and created all the way through the decades, ending up with a Hispanic uh, area manager, a woman. And she was talking about the, the challenges that she has now and how different is the land from when it was back, back, back. And that was really a great way to educate young people just coming into the agency mm -hmm. Uh, as well as the general public, because the agency has changed with the different cultures and with the changing needs of the lands. In the old days, you couldn't get a rec planner to, to get in the same rig with uh, a range guy. That was not <laughs> going to happen. Really? Oh, my goodness. And Do you know how really? stubborn anyone in range is? Oh, my. Yes. <laughs> I yes. guess not. <laughs> I guess not. And, and you know, and then there was the era, the era of the ologists. Suddenly, the bureau was hiring archaeologists, geologists, hydrologists. You know, and, and it, you had an ist at the end of your of your title always. It was. It's just remarkable, though, to see how that all affected the people. 
who were living at the time, and it continues to be, because we as a nation and our expectations and the generational changes, the agency has to change with that or it will no longer be relevant. Yeah. And when you're no longer relevant, you get swept to the back. And our lands are too precious. Our public lands are too precious to get swept to the back. You need to stay involved and relevant. Here, here. Yeah, that's well said. <laughs> I like I like the way that's you word it. things. Oh, well, thank you. That's it. Um, could we kind of wrap it up with our last like, well, advice? What else do you have? I was going to say, we can't wrap it up without asking you guys, where do you have a favorite one? Do you have a favorite state you lived in? Is there one specific trail that you guys love to do? Be careful now. <laughs> okay, maybe not, not, maybe not trail. <laughs> you know this is going to get back to people, right? <clears throat> we, can, we can leave the Oregon Trail Interpretive Center out as a contestant so yeah. that... Yeah. Uh, from my perspective, there... There have been many, many highs, uh, among them this one here in Baker, uh, the Grand Staircase. That was BLM's very first national monument that it was given to manage mm -hmm. by Secretary Babbitt. And, and it, it's still going through some very challenging times. Um, but I guess the, an experience on the land that I r remember was, uh, and I'm not a woo-woo kind of guy. You know, I don't believe That surprises in, me. I, I don't believe... Spoiler <laughs> alert. surprise of the day there, Dave. Spoiler alert. Yeah. I mean, I don't believe in ghosts, per se, and all that stuff. But like Joyce said, the land remembers. It does. So one time when I was in Utah in Price in about 74, 75... Uh, I had been driving probably for four hours out into the San Rafael Swell, and I was trying to locate what some of the locals had reported to us was a large petroglyph panel in a, a box canyon. And the directions were very vague. Very local. There wasn't <laughs> yeah. a pinpoint. Yes. <laughs> Dang it. So I drove as far as I could on the slick rock with the vehicle, and I left, and I had a map, and that was long before cell phones or anything else, so nobody knew where in the hell I was. <laughs> and I walked, and I probably walked for about another hour, and I went through a cleft, and it was about 50 yards wide maybe, but it opened up into a absolutely gorgeous uh, summer day and a beautiful box canyon with red rock cliffs 500 to 1500 feet high and as i walked into that all of a sudden all the hair on the right side of my body stood up absolutely straight and i looked over to my right and here was a panel uh, petroglyph panel that went for 50 yards, 60 yards, wow. and and it was untouched and unvandalized, and it was absolutely fabulous. That being said, I started to take photos of it with my old camera, and I got about halfway through, and it all of a sudden the air cooled, as it does in some of those canyons, and it was time for me to leave. And I hurried up, and I 
left, and I haven't been back since, and I don't know if anybody else has ever been there since, but that was a singular moment on public lands that I'll never forget, ever. Wow. And that was cool. That's but it incredible. was there was a message being delivered somehow, yeah. some way. Yeah, the you land know. remembers. I'm telling yeah, you, it, it does. does. It does. Whether it's you go out, you know, at the edge of the golf course, we have cougars that come down. We have bears that come down. You go up there and you just stand in the sagebrush and you close your eyes and listen to the wind whistling through, and the land will speak to you. It does, if you're listening, if you're open to it. Now, that's not a woo-woo moment like you had. <laughs> but there is, there is an energy to the land that it, it remains, unless it is gouged out or chemicaled out or overpopulated where it can't get through. It's there. And it's not just here where we are. It's anywhere you happen to be. We've been very fortunate to travel all over the world. And I can tell you, it is there everywhere. We have lived in places where people save their money to go visit. Mm -hmm. Now, when you put public lands in that perspective, that's important. We got to live in places people save their money to go visit. Yes. And that's, that's cool. That's, yeah. that's a gift. Yeah. That's when the gods reach out and go, okay, we've messed with you far enough. Yep. <laughs> We're going to give you this little respite before we mess with you some yeah, more. Here's a little win. Mm -hmm. Enjoy it, relish in it, and then that's here's it. your next challenge. And that's then it. breathe deeply because it's coming in. Yeah. That's it. Oh, that's so poetic. Love that. Yeah. I don't know a better way to end that. Yeah, that I don't. It's beautiful, you I, guys. I just like how you just mic drop, Joyce. You just oh. <laughs> I like your words there. Um, but just for the sake of keeping it in the podcast, we, um, as we were kind of thinking of our mission statement and why we were doing this, uh, you know, decades on dirt roads, uh, we're looking to pass this on to our generation and, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. But, and you guys have said it a handful of times as far as, you know, generations that have spoke to you, whether it be in Fanny or whether it be finding the stories of individuals and playing those or representing those at Congress or just at a kitchen table like this. Um, but, you know, what advice do you have to us, to that next generation? You've said it multiple times, but the the land can heal, the land can talk to you. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, any other advice? or? Yes. I will paraphrase one of our favorite artists, Maynard Dixon, when he was talking to some members of, of the Senate, I think it was, who had come west um, and expected to be treated very, very well because they were very, very high in the politics. And Dixon, after two days with him, said, you know what, fellas? You need to get more dirt in your flapjacks. <laughs> you need to get out on the land. You need to get dirty. That's what you need to do to appreciate what we have. When we get into the pickup, we throw the dog in the back seat. And we're bouncing along on a twin track or no twin track. And we, we, we look at each other every time and go, you know what? Life doesn't get any better than this. No, it doesn't. And when you kind of reach our stage in life, I'll be 80 years old in a couple of years. And you look back and, and about the only advice that I can really give 
somebody coming up today in public land management um, is to keep your ears open and your mouth shut and listen to what the people that are using that piece of property from which you are responsible, listen to them. Listen to the broad perspective. There's going to be people that will disagree with you vehemently. There will be people that may threaten you. Those are the wings. And if you can address their concerns to the point where you're not making fun of anybody, you're not discounting what they say, or you're not putting them down, the great middle piece will look at you and will watch how you treat that. And they will say, I think they're going to treat my interests very well. So just keep your ears open and listen to the public. And you don't have to do what they say every time because there's laws that conflict with some of their desires. But stay true to yourself and, and uh, put them first. I like that. So there. Well, thank you guys for welcoming us into your home. This oh, is, you bet. Oh, it was a awesome. pleasure. Jeez, thank you for coming. We could go on for hours, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for giving us the, the chance to do it, because every time this type of thing happens, we get rejuvenated. Yeah, it's sure. easy to just plod along. Oh, yeah, well, we're 80 years old. Blah, blah, blah. But this rejuvenates us. This, this helps us remember who we are. It does. That's awesome. You bet. And I admit. Yes. <laughs> Very cool, guys. All Thank right. you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening, guys. If you want to continue to support the podcast, give us a review. That helps us out a ton on Spotify or Apple or whatever you're listening to us on. And then if you guys have any suggestions, give us a shout at our email, decadesondirtroads at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next podcast.